Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Earlier today, the European Commission cut its growth forecasts for the euro area and slashed its projection in particular for Germany, warning that escalating trade tensions threatened to make the outlook even worse. Not a huge surprise, and yet uh, there definitely was a market response with yields going even lower uh, in Germany. Joining us now, Alberto Gallo, partner and portfolio manager for the Algebras Macro Credit Fund, as well as a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Alberto, what was your take on the European Commission's uh, forecast that was cut yet again, and the fact that the market moved on it. The European region is clearly um, into a Japan-like environment for growth. So we uh, have had uh, repetitive downgrades uh, on growth uh, over the last months. Uh, with limited fiscal stimulus. Um, Only some countries have been able to do it, but the core countries remain very conservative. And we are in the run-up to European elections at the end of this month, so that could be perhaps a game-changer. We could see maybe after European elections some uh, reaction to the sluggish growth environment which we have had. But, you know, so far it's just the ECB has been doing most of the stimulus and monetary policy on its own cannot really lift growth. We have seen that uh, across several countries. You actually end up having the opposite result. You go into a liquidity trap if you only have monetary policy keeping interest rates negative for too long. So we need a fiscal boost, uh, but we don't have the willingness. Germany is still undecided uh, and the other countries don't have a lot of ammunition. Well, Alberto, you mentioned Germany, and that's kind of what surprised me the most out of uh, this morning's data, uh, the ECB slashing the growth projection to just 0.5% from 1.1%. What's really driving that uh, deceleration in Germany? There is a number of theories. So I would say first, there's been a global deceleration with uh, Chinese orders for, um, uh, for imported goods, including cars, you know, falling very sharply at the end of last year. Uh, this hasn't recovered. Then there's a second factor uh, specific to Germany, which is Turkey. You know, the Turkish economy is under pressure. Um, Turkey and Germany are very close import-export partners. You know, the president Erdogan has just called for a rerun of the Istanbul elections, and this is creating a lot of volatility in the Turkish lira and in in generally in in business flows uh, to Turkey, um, which affects uh, affects Germany being part of the supply chain. Um, but there's also a lack of domestic demand uh, in Europe. Um, there is a rebound from last year, for sure. PMIs have gone back to positive. We're not in a recession, but we also don't have a V-shaped rebound. It's it's something between a U-shaped and an L-shaped rebound. Now, to reaccelerate an economy in in late stage in you know in the late stage of an expansion. Um, you need some fiscal stimulus. You don't. It, it, it just doesn't happen on its own. Well, you know, if you just had a recession and you tend to grow much faster because you have pent up demand, you have, you know, consumers that haven't spent for many years and companies that haven't invested. Here we're at the late at the late stage of the cycle, and we need some some uh, government uh, top down decision. Uh, 
uh, either from Germany or more broadly from China. But we have seen that the Chinese stimulus is relatively smaller compared to what they did in 2009. So, Alberto, as an investor, is this a time to stay away from European assets, in particular in Germany? Or uh, from a credit standpoint, is this a positive because it means the ECB isn't going to be backing away from its stimulus anytime soon? So, exactly. If you take Japan as an example, so what happened over 15 years, uh, 20 years, rates remained relatively low. Um, equities didn't do much. They, you know, they kept going down. You could trade some rallies, but they kept going down. Uh, credit was fine, except the worst banks uh, and corporates. Uh, credit uh, survived because once you are, you know, the definition is you are in a um, you're in a slow growth environment with persistent low rates. Companies kick the can. You may have zombie firms, zombie banks that survive because of low rates. So essentially, credit is okay in a Japan-like environment. It's not extremely exciting, but actually in Europe you have yields which are, you know, in, in dollar terms, close to high single digits, sometimes double digit. Um, you don't want to go in the lowest rated uh, names in the, you know, in the triple C's or, or low rated smaller single B's, but overall the stimulus from this B will stay there. And that's part, that's been part of our view. Where we go for growth, where there's upside risk is some other countries outside of Europe in emerging markets or in the US. Um, but I think Europe for now seems uh, very much in a very stable low rate environment, good for fixed income, good for corporate bonds, not so good for equities in the medium term. So Alberto, to what extent is the ongoing Brexit uncertainty impacting uh, the economies across Europe? You know, we saw again, that big downgrade uh, for Germany. I'm just wondering, is that uncertainty s still an issue, a meaningful issue? I would say that in the investment world, in markets, there has been a lot of uh, fears. Um, there have been a lot of fears about Brexit and also European elections. So there is a lot of investors that are disengaged from Europe. So on the one hand, yes, fundamentals are not great. Growth is very slow compared to EM or, or the US. But on the other hand, positioning is very, very light. Uh, according to the Bank of America's fund manager survey, uh, shorting European equity is the most crowded trade across global portfolio managers. So uh, if you have a bit of positive news, uh, you can, you know, prices can rise uh, relatively quickly, both in, in, in bonds and in, um, in corporate bonds and in, uh, and in equities. So, you know, we do have an unexciting fundamental view. We are stuck in a low growth, low rate environment, but um, there's also very little um, longs at the moment. So we sometimes like to be contrarian. We don't go into the worst areas, um, but there is still some value. Um, and I think European elections are going to be a non-event because the populists, yes, may win a quarter of the European Parliament, but then all the other parties will, uh, will create a pro-European coalition. In the end, you're in the European Parliament. The pro-Europeans are the majority. Um, Brexit will have to see what happens you know towards uh, the um, end of the extension period in the in the second half of the year after the summer um, we do think that you know the base case remains either a longer extension uh, or uh, right. a norway style deal so a okay. deal a soft deal yep very good alberto gallo thank you so much alberto is a partner and portfolio manager for the algebras macro credit fund uh, with about 12.3 billion pounds under management. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist.
Well, U.S. and China trade negotiations are back on investors' radar. That's for sure. Definitely a risk-off uh, day today after a very volatile day yesterday, driven in part by some of the tariff concerns. To get the latest on what these may mean for the market, we welcome Matt Maley. Uh, Matt is Managing Director and Equity Strategist at miller Tabeck. Um, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, again, taking a look at what's happened over the past couple of days, following President Trump's tweets about the tariffs. Clearly, the market is rightfully concerned uh, about some of these issues. What is your call? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think that, you know, yes, I totally agree. They should be a, at least a little bit concerned. And we also have to look at what was the market doing before this, came, uh, before this news came out. I mean, this is negative news. And even if you believe that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get a deal eventually, uh, the odds of that, uh, ha- or odds of this having a, being pushed out further or, uh, you know, more strains within that situation have obviously risen. And when you have a, a, a situation where the stock market's rallied 25% in just four months, and become quite overbought, uh, on a near-term basis anyway, when you get negative news, it should pull back. And to be honest with you, yesterday's reaction where it rallied back so strongly, I, that made me a little worried about, about there was a little bit too much complacency in the market. I think this is a natural, uh, healthy thing to, that, that the market is coming back down, and uh, we could fall a little bit further. Again, after a 25% rally, not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, and I, we should note that actually the losses are deepening near uh, session lows, negative 1.4% on the NASDAQ. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, you look at the technical underpinnings here, and I'm wondering if the trade talks were to really fundamentally break down and put on ice for a while, how big of a downdraft could we see? Well, I think it could be, you know, a fairly decent one. I mean, certainly in the, uh, uh, you know, kind of the... Five to seven percent pullback, uh, and even you know in, in today's markets where where the uh, you know mechanized trading, the algo uh, mechanized trading, and the algos and things like that uh, have a big impact on the market. It could take it even down towards correction territory. And the reason why I say that is it, is it because a lot of the uh, a turnaround, or at least people really looking for earnings to pick up on the second half, uh, and a lot of that has to do with, with a, a you know an agreement have being made sometime in the near future. So if that doesn't happen, some of those earnings forecasts are going to come down, and uh, I think that would put a little bit of a dent in the market. So Matt, you're just talking about earnings. What is your takeaway from uh, the first quarter here? It seems to have come in uh, better than expected. Um, what is your take? Well, it, it, that is true, and, and and the one problem, of course, though, is that they always beat expectations. Uh, this time, a little bit more than expected, and 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 it's very good that it went from a expectations of a negative uh, earnings season to one that is a positive one, which you know takes an earnings recession off the table, and that's good. But the uh, my my concern a little bit here is that the the uh, guidance wasn't really raised. In fact, it, it's come down a little bit for future quarters, and we're really relying heavily on this uh, on a big fourth quarter. Where estimates are now at a plus uh, uh, eight to nine percent, uh, where most of the other quarters are, are sorry, the second and third quarters are down in the one to three percent range. Uh, so uh, yes, it's been a, a, a good uh, earnings season, um, but uh, I would have liked to see it much better if we had been raising expectations a little bit more. And Lori Calvacina over at RBC Capital had a really interesting point today, saying that. Uh, 
earnings really weren't even as good as many people are, are putting them out as because you did see the earnings per share beats. Uh, 76% of companies that have re- reported so far or something about that uh, have beaten on the EPS side. On sales side, it's about half. Uh, and that's harder to engineer, whereas EPS were engineered by things like share buybacks, which were actually at the highest uh, level post-crisis in the first quarter. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how much of a sort of warning flag is that uh, that companies pulled out all the stops in the first quarter and really cannot do a repeat of that uh, when it comes to engineering the EPS beats later in the year. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the quote-unquote quality of earnings uh, has been something that people were worried about for a while now. And the thing is, it, the quality of earnings were quite good last year. I um, mean, I say they, they were worried about it, you know, before, you know, in 2014, 15, 16, we were worried about that. Uh, last year, they were, you know, they were quite good. But now the quality, again, it seems to be more financial engineering now that the, the tax cuts have been pushed to the, to, the, to the side. And now that if we get a problem again uh, with this uh, uh, agreement on the tax side, it definitely lowers that uh, uh, and not just the, the stated earnings, but the quality of earnings. And and again, when the market has is, is moved as much as it has, uh, it doesn't you know uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a disaster here. You know, any kind of a repeat of 2008 or 2000, but it does you know, begin to get people to worry about you know that we could have another uh, a downdraft, uh, something like we had in the fourth quarter. I'm not, not calling for a 20% correction, but I wouldn't be surprised at all uh, if we saw something in the five to seven percent range. Matt Maley, thank you so much for being with us. Matt Maley is Chief Equity Strategist for Miller Tabak and Co. talking about markets. It is time for a public service announcement. If you have a mother or a wife who has children or a grandmother, this Sunday is Mother's Day. You might want to remember that. Paul Sweeney, what are you doing for Mother's Day? Uh, We are having brunch and there will probably be some type of flower thing involved. Some type of flower (laughs) uh, gifting uh, going on. A lot of people giving flowers. We are so lucky to have Chris McGann, Chief Executive Officer of 1-800-Flowers.com here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Chris, how important is Mother's Day to your business? Well, how important is Mother's Day to you? <laughs> as, as, how, in other words, how many flowers am I hoping to get? Yes. I mean, you know, I'm one of those people. If my kids make a handmade card and they, you know, put some effort into it, I'll be happy. Well, we'll take it up a step. Okay. There, right? <laughs> Uh, so, so Mother's Day is a very important holiday for our business. You know, if you really look at our business overall on an annual basis, because we're driven by such everyday occasions like birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Day is only about 6% of our business. But if you look at the floral side of our business for this quarter, Mother's Day accounts for about 45% of our consumer floral business in this quarter, our fiscal fourth quarter. So it's an important day, and it's an important day to celebrate. Yeah, well, I'm looking, I like to celebrate the stock. The stock is up about 68% this year. Of course or you <laughs> Mr. Sentimental. Carry on. Let's get down to the you know the dollars and cents in the stock. So, I mean, even on a day when the market's down 1.5%, your stock is up 1.5%. So what's the story behind your company's 
Uh, great stock raise performance this year. Well, I think it's driven mostly by mothers investing in our stock right now. That's good. <laughs> uh, but really, well done. <laughs> Take it back to the sentimental. I don't think so. <laughs> but really, what's been happening and what we, the investment community is recognizing that we're doing what we said we were going to do. And we laid out for the last couple of years, actually, where we've been accelerating our growth. We took the growth rate from 3% a year, two years ago to 4%. This year, we came out, we guided the 5 to 7% growth. We raised our guidance after the holiday season to 7 to 8%. We just raised our guidance again two weeks ago to the high end of that range. So our growth rate is accelerating as customers are becoming more and more aware of our family of brands and ordering from more than one brand. What's the highest margin aspect of your business? The food, the flowers? The gourmet food side of our business. We probably get in the mid to higher uh, to upper 40% range margin. The 1-800-Flowers business is usually around that 39 to 40%. That's where it's going to stay. But really the higher margin products are the gourmet food side for us. I'm looking at the PGO function on the Bloomberg Terminal, which gives a breakdown of kind of where your revenue comes from. And I was shocked to see that the gourmet food and gift baskets is uh, over 50% of your business and flowers are about 40% of your business. Is it time to rename the company? Because you're more than flowers. You're kind of all year round, lots of gifts. And all I'm the sorry, things. Paul, 1-800-GOURMET-FOODS doesn't really <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but we get that question all the time, Paul. Should we re re rename the company as we've become really this company of celebrations? But when we look at it from a marketing perspective, we have such iconic brands, especially the two lead ones, 1-800-Flowers.com, Harry and David, and they bring in such great traffic. We'd only be renaming it really for the investment community. And I think one 800 Flowers and Harry and David both has such brand equity. We'll stay with this multi-brand strategy. I love the idea also, though, of calling it to order something is also anathema to people under a certain age. When yes. You just do it online. <laughs> so it's not only is it also more food than uh, than it is flowers, but also the concept of 1-800 is probably going to be obsolete in about 10 years. So, I mean, from that perspective, how much of the uh, how, how much of the sales come online? Versus... Yeah, well, we're predominantly an e-commerce driven yeah. company. <laughs> and even go. if you look at 1-800 flowers brand itself, 97 percent of the business is e-commerce mobile commerce driven. So I, I think the brand has become so well known, most younger people don't even realize it was named after a telephone number. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, I'll go back sentimental a little bit more. What are the most popular flowers for Mother's this. Day? That's, yeah. that's how sentimental you yes. get. That's, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> so, so for Mother's Day, I think we see a mix of vibrant colors. So it's roses, lilies, daisies, carnations, which have made a nice comeback, which are one of my favorites. They last forever. Uh, I love them. But really, a mix of vibrant colors and one of the great products that we sell is called mother's embrace and it's named after what's the most comforting thing you can get from your mom but a hug so we turn that around and one of our creative depends florists, who your mom is <laughs> one of our creative florists in Stafford Virginia Devlin Reed created this mother's embrace product and it's just a fantastic product one of our top selling what are you getting your wife Flowers. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, this, this, this Mother's Day I won't be because we'll be celebrating my daughter's graduation from William & Mary. Oh, congratulations. Uh, so, That's so, very exciting. So, no, so I won't be able to have flowers there while we're down in Williamsburg, Virginia. What's the growth area for you? Uh, the growth area is 
both really right now. All three areas of our business are growing. The gourmet food side is growing nicely. The consumer floral business is growing. What's driving the gourmet food side is the acquisition of Harry and David that we did a number of years ago. And you take a business like Harry and David that went through a bankruptcy, was stagnant for three years coming out of the bankruptcy. We buy it. We put it on our platform. We take out over $20 million of operating costs doing so. And now we have the e-commerce business growing about 8 or 9% right now. Uh, that's, that shows the benefits of the platform for growth that we've created. Well, my favorite stat here is about 20 million stems for Mother's Day alone will be delivered. That's mm-hmm. a lot. Some of them to the Sweeney household. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, Hopefully. Chris McCann, yeah, Chris McCann, president and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com, does trade on the NASDAQ under the symbol FLWS. Uh, based in Long Island, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Well, U.S. markets are going lower, led by the Nasdaq down 1.6%, driven really by the increasing question around whether the U.S. and China will come to a trade agreement after all. Joining us, I'm very pleased to say, is Dr. Henry Wang. He is founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization, uh, based in Beijing, but joining us here uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Uh, Dr. Wang, thank you so much for being here. Just how much of a disagreement agreement seems to be going on right now between the U.S. and China that's impeding some sort of uh, trade trade pact here. Th- thank you. Thank you for having me. I, actually, I think that uh, all along we have been seeing President Trump giving tweets and uh, uh, Secretary Lighthizer and the Minuchi talking about all positive news about negotiation. If according to the Secretary that 90% has been done, well, I think that's already a very great achievement. So, so, so I think that uh, there may be some finalizing when they put into the uh, uh, printing and put into the details. There could be a little, uh, uh, I, I think, still negotiation going on on, on the final wording of that. Uh, so I think that probably needs both, you know, sides to really take the uh, wisdom and uh, leadership, uh, uh, you know, uh, role in in finalizing this deal. I think it's it will be highly irresponsible to 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 really. Uh, to not having this deal because not only the business community in China and the U.S. wants this, but also the rest of the world. And the whole world is highly watching on this. I don't think both countries can afford another uh, trade tariff war going on. And uh, I think this, uh, this, this final differences could be solved, you know, through consultation and friendly discussion rather than really hostile and make, uh, you know, force people to the corner, which I think it would backfire maybe in the end. So, Dr. Wang, you mentioned that both sides, certainly from the business community, uh, would like to have a trade deal done in China. From the Chinese perspective, uh, is that consistent with what the government wants? Is the government and business, are they on the same page? Or is, is there just a fundamental problem from the government's perspective about some of the bigger issues about trade? I think it's it's finally clear now I th- in China. You know, after this, this trade war has already started for a year now, this friction going on. And... Uh, and we all uh, go through ups and downs and uh, and the roller coaster of, of, of both economies. And I think particularly in China, I think we, um, you know, have have gone through this for a long period of time. I think the government, actually, foreign spokesperson said that, you know, we want the stability, we want to 
be responsible. We want to really finish this deal. We want to be uh, re- reasonable to, to not only to the Chinese business but also U.S. and the rest of the world. So, so I think the government is in, in, in the same wavelength with the business community, and uh, I think that's not only for Chinese perspective but also for the U.S. perspective as well. So, Robert Lighthizer, the chief negotiator for the U.S. with China over some of these uh, trade parameters, he came out and he confirmed that there is some sort of backpedaling by mm-hmm. the Chinese government on some agreements that they had made uh, previously, including changing Chinese law. Uh, having to do with intellectual property, among other things. I'm just wondering if that's true. Mm-hmm. That seems like a more fundamental breach that mm-hmm. perhaps everybody wants a deal in Sisang Kumbaya, but it's going to be very hard to get beyond. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm not involved in the detail of, of this, but but for what I heard, you know, what the secretary said, uh, uh, that, you know, uh, possible, but uh, but there's also a culture issue there. You know, like uh, if, if a Chinese law is already there, then if you want to change that, it takes, uh, you know, takes a process. I mean, so, and, and National People's Council has to go through that, and then that a lot of uh, a consensus, consensus building. So it's not, I think, up to Vice Premier Liu to say immediately, uh, it can be done, not done. Uh, so I think if there's a mechanism there to 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 lo- lo- work towards that direction, let's give a little patience on that. Not really push, you know, right away and. Uh, you know, or, or interpret that as a refusal. I, I think that's probably important. This is really an interesting point, Dr. Wang, and I think it's it's one that, that, that we really need to emphasize, which is uh, Robert Lighthizer, President Trump, they have not been talking yeah. uh, with Liu He recently, right? Mm-hmm. So this has been uh, over, uh, you know, through other people or, or not necessarily yeah. discussed. Could this just simply be a communication error where the Chinese government said, well, we can't change the law overnight, yeah. uh, you know, and, and then they're saying, well, you guys are backpedaling yeah. And that's the breach in communication. Absolutely, that's that's quite possible. I mean, from from my experience and uh, talking with the people in the in the multinational past, there could be a culture uh, misinterpretation sometimes. It, it takes a little process to do things in China. Like I can give examples. You know, I mean, uh, the foreign investment law just passed uh, in March. It takes quite a while to discuss that. So so they they, they don't mention China twenty twenty five anymore. They are actually saying you know they got guaranteed the foreign uh, right of uh, there's no forced technology transfer. Any IPR violation will be punished, will be prosecuted. That will be written into the law. So you see, Chinese law is also accommodating a lot of uh, uh, complaints that uh, uh, multinational West country complaint, uh, U.S. particularly in the past. So I think you know the attitudes of Chinese always, uh, you know, they are very uh, accommodating. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, to to black, you know, to frankly say, oh, China is denying or was withdraw. I don't think that, that that is true. If they are already agreed in principle, let's find out detail how to implement that rather than say, oh, China has been. Uh, you know, re- uh, taking all the things back. So that maybe for the political purpose, I mean, very, very useful and generate a lot of uh, hype on that. But but it's not, I don't think it's a real situation, probably. So, Dr. Wang, just to be clear, the, the two big issues, as I think the that we understand it, are intellectual property, uh, forced transfer, technology tra- transfer. That seems to be the area where there's either disagreement or there's no agreement. Yeah. What is the stance of China on those two key issues? Are you saying that by 2025 they will be addressed? Well, actually, you know, China just passed a law at the last uh, National People's Congress, uh, uh, which uh, at, at the, in March, and then in that in new investment law, China has stupidity in that law. There will be no more forced technology transfer, uh, not allowed, any any government at any level, and also on the IPR, uh, intellectual property protection, and then there will be no uh, viol- can, cannot be a violation of that. It cannot be forced technology transfer. If if anybody doing that. That would be, pu- be punished, prosecuted. So that already written into Chinese law, passed in March this year. 
So, so you can see China's attitude towards that is, is quite uh, forthcoming, actually, not avoiding those kind of uh, uh, you know, challenges. One of the big other issues is enforcement of the agreement. And, and I'm wondering, you know, you were saying, uh, Dr. Wong, that uh, this could be a communication error and law takes a while to change. But what's sort of the recourse if the law doesn't change uh, in mm-hmm. time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, uh, I, I think that the, the government is now is very serious. I, I, I read there is going to be a public close hundred people to come. It's very very serious, very real. Uh, all the details going to be probably backed up and you know looking into the final really uh, in the conclusion of this deal. But very seriously, with such a large delegation, and I think that uh, you know let's put it there. We have we have not only U.S. but also international committee to watch this. This is such a high profile trade friction, and we have. Uh, you know, World Intellectual Property Organization. <laughs> we have, uh, uh, you know, WTO. All, all those people are watching this. So, so I don't think that uh, if China deliberately saying something and then they say, "Oh, we're going to take it back," I don't think China, you know, is still, uh, of course, honor its uh, commitments and and so whatever. I, I think when they finalize this deal, there could be a lot of a discussion going on, and uh, also there's a cultural differences uh, in terms of understanding of each other. But I, I think in the end. Um, uh, the world needs this. The Chinese needs, the yep. U.S. needs, and multinational needs. But after yep. all, you know, the U.S. company have a six, eight thousand of them in China, yep. making five hundred billion revenue a year. I mean, more. So we ma- need both ma- sides. Yeah, much you, larger than the, than, than the deficit. And China and U.S. actually you know, export to yep. the U.S. U.S. multinational accounts half of that. Right. So so that's right. Dr. Henry Wong, thank you so much. Dr. Wong is founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization, giving us his thoughts uh, on the. Ongoing trade negotiations between the United States and China. The trade delegation arrives later this week from China to Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.